Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. This week on The Research Beat, our guest is Julia Bornman, PhD candidate and silo pain study manager at the Centre for Psychedelic Research, Imperial College London. Welcome to The Research Beat. Today's guest is Julia Bornman, PhD candidate and silo pain study manager at the Centre for Psychedelic Research, Imperial College London. Julia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Julia, your research is in psilocybin and various conditions, including chronic pain. So let's start with psilocybin. Can you tell us what is it and where does it come from? So psilocybin is a substance that kind of falls into this group of quote-unquote classic psychedelics. You might have heard of these kind of drugs before. They come from these Greek words, psyche and delos, which basically mean mind manifesting. And this is quite a romantic notion that was first thought of by Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond. But it encompasses this group, which includes psilocybin and other substances like LSD or DMT, which is found in ayahuasca. And psilocybin specifically is found in uh, magic mushrooms, which many people might have heard of. And those are mushrooms which grow naturally actually all over the world in various different species. And the way, the main way that these substances work is on the serotonin system in the brain. They're quite specific activators of a certain serotonin sub-receptor called the serotonin 2A receptor. And they have a host of uh, very interesting effects both physiologically and subjectively as well. In general, psychedelics in in general, but also psilocybin specifically, is known to be very safe and well-tolerated. So there's quite a lot of research to suggest that there isn't really any kind of potential for overdose or addiction potential, which is really good to know, especially in in working with with the clinical population. You can take it in various doses. So right now we know a lot about, or we hear a lot about the microdosing, where you take it in very small doses. But more typically, these drugs have been taken in quite high doses, uh, and those can cause some pretty profound subjective effects. And those might affect people's perception, their emotional experience, their psychological experience, their physical experience. So it's a very multifaceted kind of thing to go through. We'll go a little bit more into the research you've been doing, but can you tell us exactly what serotonin is and what effect the psilocybin is having on the serotonin? So serotonin is a neurotransmitter in the brain, which has, it's it's difficult to say exactly what the precise effects are because psilocybin affects various aspects of the serotonin system. So as I said, it specifically affects the 2A receptor, which has mm-hmm. loads of different downstream effects, it's pretty interesting because, I mean, we'll talk about this more later, but that's one of the theories that why it might work pretty well in cases of depression, potentially. But it also, the 2A receptors 
there's there's some preclinical and indeed clinical research indicating that this is actually what might be involved specifically in plasticity, which is basically uh, a phenomenon where your brain can adapt to specific situations and things that you're experiencing. So it, potentially this is a, a very precise button that we could press mm. in the brain, which might induce a, a learning experience in the person. Incredible. Just beginning to outline the relationship between substances and everything that's at play in your body, your mind, your spirit, your feelings about the world. On chronic pain, can you tell us about this and specifically fibromyalgia? Yeah, so chronic pain, I think we've all met someone with chronic pain, statistically speaking, about, I think about between a quarter and half of the world population has chronic pain. So most of us will at some point in our lives experience this, especially it's quite common in, in older people. And it can take very many different forms. One of some of the most common being, for example, chronic back pain or lower back pain. But there are various different types of chronic pain. And some of them that or a specific form of chronic pain that I'm particularly interested in is something called fibromyalgia. And what mm -hmm. that is, is, is a condition that affects about 5% of people, at least here in the UK. Uh, so about one in 20. And the interesting thing about fibromyalgia actually is that in comparison to chronic pain, it predominantly affects women, particularly middle-aged women. So I think the statistic is about 75 or 80% of people with fibromyalgia are actually female. So this is a pretty interesting kind of subgroup and it is it is quite common kind of a condition is characterized by widespread body pain. So it's all around the body. It typically affects muscles and it might feel like a burning pain. It might feel like a shooting kind of a nerve like pain. It might be dull and aching. It can affect all parts of the body. So it's not specifically, like I said, for chronic back pain. It's not just the back. It's typically in the shoulders, uh, also in the back, but also in importantly in the limbs as well. So it's it's very widespread, but beyond the, the pain, which can be very, very intense and constant, beyond the pain, there are also certain hallmarks of fibromyalgia that are interesting to look at. So there are typically a number of other symptoms that co-appear, including something called brain fog, where people mm -hmm. might have concentrating. They might notice that their memory is affected, sometimes quite dramatically. I've spoken to a number of people who actually thought, for example, that they had early onset dementia. Uh, it was so bad. So it can be very, very limiting for people. They might have difficulty sleeping or like getting to sleep insomnia. They might be sleeping far too much. So there, there are a number of things which can be affected here as well. And then beyond the kind of cognitive effects, there are some really marked psychological effects here. So in a normal chronic pain population, of everyone with chronic pain, about a quarter of people will have some sort of psychological diagnosis as well, typically depression or anxiety. Mm. And if you look at a fibromyalgia population, this is disproportionately much higher. So instead of about a quarter of people, it's estimated of about 60 to 80% of people have this. So we notice that there's a very interesting kind of hallmark or, or footprint of, of this condition, which when taken all together can be extremely debilitating for people. The treatment right now is 
is not excellent. Uh, a lot of people are still really struggling, and that's not because people aren't, or at least clinicians are, are trying very, very hard to to help them. But it's because we don't really know what causes fibromyalgia, mm. which makes it, to me especially, interesting. Again, there are some hypotheses. It might be an immune condition, some people think. It might be a kind of inflammatory in nature. But there are also certain hypotheses which think that it might actually be psychological or traumatic in nature, potentially. Uh, we might have heard the term psychosomatic. Uh, oftentimes, this is used to really downplay people's experiences of pain and perhaps uh, disenfranchise some people and make them feel not heard. But in this case, it can be very real. You know, people's suffering is is valid and it is a real experience, but it might have causes which are not directly an injury to the body, for example. So it's a, it's a really uh, complex condition with lots of question marks. Uh, but mm. to me, that makes it all the more intriguing. There's an incredible spectrum that you just described there between low levels of pain and pain throughout the whole body that may last for days, weeks, months, or even your whole life. So this is a subject really touching everybody in one way yeah. or another. Yeah, you, you can also see it in that this is true for everyone with chronic pain, but in, in a lot of the patients that I speak to, it, when you said it touches everyone, it does through the reverse effect as well in that because this is quite a common condition, we know it's it's quite likely that we've met someone with this, but people with this condition, especially if it's progressed quite far, if they are quite debilitated, oftentimes people will really remove themselves from social situations. Mm. And this can be really, really difficult and, and compound some of these symptoms that we were speaking about before. So two very, very interesting fields of research, psilocybin and chronic pain and fibromyalgia. So how exactly do these two things come together in your work? Yeah, so that's a great question. So just as a bit of a recap for people who might not be familiar with, with psychedelic research, there's been kind of a quote-unquote psychedelic renaissance in the past 10-15 years when it comes mm -hmm. to psychedelic research after a period of about 50 years of, of drug prohibition. So this is a pretty new field. There were some initial studies in, in the 50s and 60s, but it's pretty new right now to kind of re-explore and, and open up these boxes again. In general, the research that has been done so far, the contemporary research has looked at mental health conditions, in particular depression, OCD, end-of-life anxiety, addiction of alcohol and, and tobacco, and just, just a, a variety of, of different mental health states. But here it's interesting because we're trying to move slightly away from it. We're pivoting a little bit into a different field, or maybe not a different field, but if you imagine a Venn diagram, right, we're at an mm -hmm. overlap point here. And so I mentioned to you that, yes, in the fibromyalgia population, there's a huge amount of physical suffering. And so we can look at this from a preclinical lens. There's been a lot of psychedelic research looking at things, not necessarily in a clinical population, but also just looking at cell cultures, for example, that indicates that there could be some really interesting physiological effects of psychedelics. So we know that psychedelics are immunomodulatory. So we know that it affects the immune system for example, IL-6 is a very widespread and, and well-studied molecule that is known to be very active in inflammatory conditions. 
and this is known to be modulated by psychedelics. And so we, we can see that there are certain molecular effects of, of psychedelics, which could be therapeutically useful in a pain condition. Beyond this, we also know that psychedelics can affect downstream pain regulation. So pain is communicated through nerves, in particular also up through the spinal cord into the brain. And then the brain also speaks to our nerves in the body in return. And this is known as kind of a descending pain system. And we know that psychedelics can, can modulate this pain system. We don't have a lot of details yet, but this is a really interesting avenue to explore. I mentioned that in the in the 50s and 60s, there were some initial research with psychedelics, and some of this did look at psychedelics with chronic pain. It was mostly focusing on LSD, but there were some initial points to indicate that there might be an analgesic or a pain-killing action of these substances. So there is some kind of evidence that may suggest that, that psychedelics could affect pain directly. There's actually a, a cool new new study that was done by a team in, in Maastricht University looking at low doses of LSD, and they found that there are uh, analgesic effects so that it reduces people's pain perception. Mm -hmm. um, and there are also more kind of systematic things or system-wide things that that might be interesting to, to look at. So I mentioned that there's a significant kind of psychological effect in in people with chronic pain specifically also with fibromyalgia and we know or at least the data would indicate so far that psychedelics might be beneficial in things like depression and anxiety which are also very common in people with fibromyalgia so we could think that perhaps by targeting this experience of the or the, or the side of the pain experience perhaps we could improve someone's overall well-being um, and part of that is also that we know that a lot of pain is shaped by people's beliefs so mm -hmm. pain doesn't have to be caused by an injury to the body right a lot of our pain is a creation of our brain and so we know that this experience of suffering is is plastic and is able to be to be affected by our beliefs so we think that perhaps by changing our beliefs which is something that that is a, a research direction that psychedelics are going down that that psychedelics may be potent kind of catalysts for for reshaping people's beliefs and perceptions and expectations so we think that perhaps by by affecting this in a in a therapeutically useful way perhaps we could improve people's overall pain experience but these are all just just hypotheses at the minute but that would be that's the hope yes so this is not the kind of medication that most people know where you introduce a substance and say it has a measurable physical effect on some part of the body but you're talking about altering people's beliefs potentially yeah it's a it's a little bit higher level so for example if you imagine right now if you have a headache you might take mm. an ibuprofen or a paracetamol and then a little bit later you will feel better what we're trying to do is is not like this we are using a, a format called psilocybin assisted therapy and we're using this as a potential way to 
to help people manage their pain. So this is not something that you would necessarily take every day for your pain. In fact, that's actually the opposite of what we want. It would be something that you would do perhaps, well, we, we, we don't know about the exact frequency yet, but we're just looking into it now. So this would be like one rare event that you mm -hmm. could do to perhaps reset or reframe your, your experience and your perceptions and your expectations about your pain. And then it could in theory, improve your relationship with your pain. It could hopefully wow. perhaps make people a little bit more empowered when it comes to their mm -hmm. pain. Is one of the, the really debilitating things about chronic pain and fibromyalgia is that this is something that stays with people for months, years, mm -hmm. decades, and it can really wear down on people. It can mm -hmm. make people feel hopeless. There's a great deal of despair. People feel like they can't do anything to make themselves suffer less and this is a very difficult position to be in so perhaps if we are able to shift this belief this maladaptive belief this this thought pattern that isn't useful and might actually be making people feel worse if we can shift this in a useful direction perhaps people can help themselves perhaps mm -hmm. this belief this this top down pain propagation might mm -hmm. be alleviated. People might feel better. People might start doing things to help themselves. There's some research that actually came out, I think last year, to show that psychedelics might have effects that basically encourage better well-being or behaviorally, I mean. Uh, so people might want to take care of themselves better in the future. So that's that's our hope. Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily a new aspirin. Um, but it's a it's a kind of a bigger picture thing. So how does all of this work in a laboratory setting? How does psychedelic assisted therapy work in practice? Because some of the things that you're talking about could be considered real life experiences. Perhaps somebody would take these drugs and have some kind of experience and that would lead to serious changes in the way they look at the world. How do you try to control this in a scientific setting and how do you make it useful, practical, and measurable for patients? Yeah, so this experience is fundamentally unpredictable. For every person, their experience will be entirely different. There are, of course, certain similarities that can be explained by the type of drug you use or the context that you're in, but it's it's impossible to predict the exact type of experience. That being said, the context that, that we create, the kind of container, if you will, uh, and the approach that we have, we try to keep that pretty consistent. So it's kind of different from how these substances have been used traditionally, which is generally in group settings. What we do in, in a research context is generally in a hospital, which is not, you know, this beautiful nature setting that you might be imagining, um, but it is, we, we try to make it as comfortable as possible. There are certain protocols that are already published where you can kind of see visual references, but it tends to be a very cozy, low-lit environment. There's typically one patient at a time or one participant, and there are two people with them. These people are called guides because mm -hmm. they tend to guide them through their experience gently. They are clinicians usually, so psychologists or, or doctors who are very experienced in this field. And it is set up in 
kind of three stages. So before we have any sort of drug session, we will have our patients and speak with them. The guides will get to know them and build some trust. Trust is essential because this is a very alien experience potentially. It's intense. It can be very vulnerable. People can feel raw emotions. And so it's really important that you have a trusting environment where those feelings can be explored and also that you can be honest with the guides to to really get the most out of the experience. And so in the preparation sessions, we'll discuss, you know, what to expect, some psychoeducation, some perhaps intention setting as well. Mm-hmm. What does the, the person want to get out of their experience and, and how can they work with the guides to get there? There are also some important boundaries have to be discussed. For example, uh, the concept of touch. This can be very therapeutically useful potentially for some people as like a grounding experience if they are having a, a, an emotionally hard time, it might be very helpful for them to have someone hold their hand gently. But that really needs to be discussed beforehand to see if a person is comfortable with that. And consent is really paramount, especially, as I said, because this is such a vulnerable experience. So you have to go through various aspects of the psychedelic experience and, and see what's, what the, the, the patient's expectations are as well. So really, a lot of precision is needed in creating these conditions? Yeah. Conditions that feel warm and natural to set up a good experience. Because like you said, this is unpredictable and this could lead to many different outcomes depending on the personality of the person. Yeah, I think what research so far suggests, which I've touched on before, is this idea of of plasticity, that Mm -hmm. this experience especially at a high dose might open up this quote-unquote window of plasticity that we refer to so it might be this period of time where people are very open and so we try to make sure that this openness is is therapeutically useful that it takes them in a loving and a compassionate direction right that can ultimately help them I don't think that there's any data on this because I don't think that it would be very ethical at all, but you could hypothesize that this openness could also be taken into a negative direction where people could be hurt, you know? So we do this very carefully to ensure that this vulnerability and rawness is held well. The next thing that would happen usually is, for us, it's it's the next day. The, the participant would come in for a dosing session and this would be as i said in a very kind of comfortable environment they would have you know gotten to know their their guides before and typically this is a patient led experience although i think it's important to say that currently there isn't one unifying protocol for psychedelic assisted therapy this is oftentimes at the discretion of the lab or of the research study there isn't like one protocol, for example, it's not like CBT, where if you go to one CBT therapist, it'll be more or less comparable to another CBT therapist. There are nuances between them. But generally speaking, it's it's a patient-led journey where the, the guides just offer support when it's needed, but they don't necessarily direct them anywhere. So it's an inward journey for the patient. So typically they will lie down in a comfortable space Uh, There'll be a very intentionally chosen playlist because we know that music is 
an essential catalyst of this experience. Mm -hmm. Their eyes will be closed and for any onlookers, it might look quite uh, non-eventful, but actually it's very intense potentially. And the mm -hmm. guides are just there to support them through that experience. Yeah, where, where they might be having some some quite quite profound things happen to them. And then the next day, as I mentioned earlier, there's potential rawness, there's an openness there, and it needs to be held carefully. So the next day, patients will come back in to what we call an integration session. And what this is, is that they sit down with their guides again, and they speak with them it's it's quite therapeutic and they make sense of what they experience they contextualize this into their everyday life and what this actually means for them and perhaps how they can take something with them and and use it for their own well-being it sounds like it could be a very very powerful form of therapy if it's wielded correctly and used in the right way I think so, yeah. I mean, there's the Spider-Man quote, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Um, so I, th I definitely agree with that. I think that there are various different ways that this could be done well, though. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be in this context. I think that group settings like have been used for, for a very long time. Traditionally, those, those could also be very powerful, but those also use certain elements of, of, of holding and, and of of warmth that I think are, are are essential. Perhaps they might lean on on the community a little bit more and and the sense of social connection. But I think that yeah, I think if if these powerful experiences are held well, they can they can be really beautiful for some people. One, two, three, four. The research beat is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. I'm very interested to know what you think about the view of orthodox medicine in this case, because whether we're talking about your work, which is done in controlled settings, or people taking on these activities individually in their own homes, what's the view of the medicine that we're all familiar with? Hmm. So I'm I'm not a doctor. I'm not a clinician. So that's just a little disclaimer before I give my answer. I think medicine is amazing. I think it it saves lives. It helps people. And I think by and large, it's a fantastic thing. I think that this form of therapy, at least my intention, is not to replace orthodox medicine. That is 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 a misguided belief. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it could complement it though. I, I think that orthodox medicine by nature, it's it's a great thing that it's highly specialized, right? You need people to be experts in certain things and they will know the tiniest minutia and that's extremely therapeutically helpful and clinically relevant. That being said, when you are very specialized in, in certain tiny, tiny fields, that can come at a price. And I think that that price is viewing things as a system, because oftentimes I speak to to certain whether it's patients and they have their own experiences or also clinicians, it it becomes apparent that by getting so specialized we can forget that actually things are interconnected and the mm -hmm. body works as a whole. And so I've spoken to patients who have perhaps you know had 
appointments with 12 different specialists only to finally figure out that all of these specialists all missed one unifying diagnosis, for example. And that might be, you know, a, a, a very dramatic example. But I think that there is this, this idea of the whole that yeah. seems to be a little bit missing. And perhaps this form of therapeutic intervention could could assist in that because we do see that there is a huge amount of interconnected elements in between whether it is for example chronic pain or depression you know viewing things as a system is is important but not exclusively so i think it's a yes and uh and i and i think hopefully they can complement each other very well in the future it really paints a picture of the interconnectedness of the whole body, the mind, the heart, the spirit. And like you say, I think many people have had that experience where a doctor can give a very precise diagnosis and say, I have something here to help you with that. But perhaps that could leave behind some psychological problem that's also connected to, yeah. to this, the same issue. And it's a very, very interesting field of research. Is yeah, the, I mean... In, in in pain specifically, we see this so often that people might, you know, have their their physical distress addressed, but their their psychological well-being is is often left kind of on the back burner. So it's, mm. it's, it's interesting that you raise that. Um, but it's obviously not just in pain. I think also the way that healthcare is set up, doctors are forced to see patients and and try and diagnose them and help them within like you know five or ten minutes. This is unreasonable, and they do the best that they can. But of course, I don't think it's practical to assume that we can change the entire medical field to be this beautiful, holistic, you know, interconnected web very easily. I think that's a huge challenge. It's just something that I think would, would be something worth considering, definitely. I do think sometimes that structure frustrates some people because they have the idea that if they were to visit the doctor, that the doctor would solve everything. And yeah. of course, in 10 minutes, the doctor can't do that um, yeah. in, in such a short space of time. The picture of the problem might be so much vaster than either patient or doctor are actually aware of. And I think some people have very frustrating experiences for these reasons. Yeah, yeah. It's I think we're we're only at, at the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we have a great understanding of of a lot, but there's so much left to learn, you know, and, and I think it's amazing that we have these incredibly talented and knowledgeable doctors, but to expect them to fix everything immediately is and in such a short amount of time is a lot. But hopefully we can we can make things a little bit better and a little bit better connected and maybe a little bit more human uh, as well in the future. That leads me on to my next question, which is about the nature of your research. So you're very interested in research that's carried out with or by patients. So can you tell us a yeah. bit more about that? So this is this is a type of research or or a method in research called patient and public involvement that mm -hmm. I think is essential to take seriously. For a long time, this was kind of like an optional add-on for grant applications to look good, like an extra gold star. And it was seen as a, a bit of a pain for people, just mm -hmm. like another checkbox to complete. And I admit at, at first I, I wasn't entirely convinced, I didn't really understand it, but I, I went on this journey a few years ago and I began speaking to people who use psychedelic drugs for their chronic pain, they self-medicate, mm -hmm. and I wanted to learn from them and their experiences so that we could hopefully build their opinions into our protocol and learn from them. 
So to contextualize this, as I said, there was some research done about 50, 60 years ago, but some of the methodology left something to be desired, and it wasn't necessarily useful when we were building our studies. So there wasn't something that we could draw on immediately. At the same time, there is a growing kind of grassroots movement, especially online, of people sharing their experiences and and almost crowdsourcing protocols for what might work. So a great example of that is this organization called Cluster Busters, which consists of, I think, more than 10,000 people at this point who use psychedelic substances, specifically psilocybin and LSD, to treat cluster headaches, which are also known as suicide headaches. So they're incredibly painful and, and impairing mm. conditions that, that can really knock people out or you know, weeks and, and they're recurrent and current treatment is is not useful for a lot of people. And so these tens of thousands or 10,000 people came together and they found a really useful protocol that actually worked for them. And it kind of organically emerged on the internet. And eventually this protocol was used in research and was found to be useful and, and data supporting it now. So I thought if we could go into this grassroots environment and speak to people and say, you know, what is your pain like and how how do you use these substances? How does it help you? Does it help you? And what are the things that are important to you when you have these experiences? What is important to you and, and how can we potentially learn from this? And I think it's a, a beautiful symbol of partnership, I think, of, especially with modern medicine, you know, and especially with chronic pain, a lot of people don't really feel heard. They don't really feel taken seriously. People might have dismissive experiences, which can be really difficult to handle as a patient. And so by partnering with, with patients, we know that these this type of research produces more relevant outcomes because mm -hmm. patients have directly had an influence on on what is being investigated and they know that this is relevant to them and so they actually take the outcomes more seriously we know that people are more likely to stick to treatment plans if they know that there has been patient involvement going into it or even if they don't know but it, it just makes it better for them so there are better outcomes it also means that the research is transparent and accountable which i think is really important but beyond that also on a practical level it's it's cost effective because it means that we don't have to troubleshoot and trial and error various different things if we've spoken to a number of people and we see that this is a trend emerging on its own you know there's a, a better chance than just shooting in the dark that that's something that, that this trend might be useful and so if we kind of use this approach, it, it can be very time time effective and also cost effective. So it's an efficient approach. So I, I tried to do this and I interviewed some people or I, I rather I had some discussions where we basically tried to co-produce an approach for us for this study that we were designing. And it was really, really eye-opening and I'm very glad I did it. And now I think it's certainly so much more than a, a checkbox, you know, it's, it's a mm. really profound Experience and it's also it connects you with the people that you're trying to help. It puts a face on it. It's not just you know a condition with certain statistics. It's it's people and their lives, and it's very very touching. I think. Can you share any of the experiences or stories that came out of that study that you found particularly touching? Mm, yeah. There's there's one great story of a of a person with with cluster headaches and mm -hmm. trigeminal neuralgia. So this person had had these sorts of headaches for 
decades and it was debilitating and really affected their life significantly. They had tried, I'm not exaggerating, literally every single painkiller on the market and to no success, including, you know, very intense things like opioids even. And it was very difficult for them to the point where they were considering even suicide. Uh, and by having this very high dose experience, they reported that their headaches stopped immediately and they didn't have another kind of flare up, if you will, for 12 months, which was, if you can, you know, contextualize this, this person was suffering every day and was on, on the fence of being broken mm. uh, to flourishing, actually. They were able to do, they weren't just from minus one to zero. They went from minus one to plus one if you can imagine so mm. it's, it's it's it was very touching for me to hear that but also on the other side there were there were people there were stories of people who had also been prescribed massive amounts of different treatments some people were even dependent on opioids for years even if they had followed the prescription exactly and weren't abusing things you know these these were mothers housewives they were regular people quote unquote and they faced incredible difficulty with their pain but also you know coming off of these substances mm. and and these psychedelic experiences were so profound for them because it helped them first of all, stop suffering so much with their withdrawal, but also it helped their pain. It helped them reconnect with their family. It helped them manage their life better. So it's very inspiring to me to see the, the physical, tangible effects and see how people's stories can change radically. And of course, these are, you know, dramatic examples of people mm. who were really helped. And I'm, I don't claim that every single person will have this sort of experience. This is definitely, you know, on the extreme side of standard deviations. But I think it's it's really moving to see the, the, the potential, right? So even if somebody doesn't have such an ex extreme experience, I think it would be beautiful to even see a shift in this direction. Mm. Um, yeah, it makes me very hopeful. This is really an incredible natural resource. And it takes us back to what you said at the beginning of the discussion that this substance, psilocybin, can be found almost everywhere. And mm. it's been with humanity for a very, very long time. It's a deep natural force that clearly has some intricate connection to the human body and the mind. And, and your work is really trying to harness that, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's, uh, you know, some esoteric quintessential connection between these mushrooms and, and the human spirit. That would certainly be a beautiful notion. But there, there is, you know, there, there's something there. Uh, mm. And I, I'm very interested between this, the relationship and, and the, the potential that lies there. I think it's, it's beautiful, especially if done carefully and with intention. Mm. Yeah. That leads very neatly into my next question, which is, a little bit broader. Do you think that drug-based research like yours has a reputation problem? Hmm. I think there's, I think there's a, an interesting kind of interplay going on here between mm -hmm. some skepticism through decades of misinformation, of, of demonization of these substances on the one side, and on the other side, there's a great deal of hype right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that the reputation of these substances is extremely varied. Uh, so I think that we have to 
be really careful how we go into this. So I think that we we can't claim that, for example, this is going to, I, I'm sure we, we all have different versions of the story, but you know, the guy down the road took LSD once and it scrambled his brain and he's never been the same since. I don't think we should say that because the evidence doesn't suggest that at all. Equally, I don't think we should say that these substances are a panacea, that they are a cure for everything. I've read online really dangerous statements where people can can be led to believe that, you know, this will single-handedly in one experience cure cancer. Of course it won't, you know. So I think that we have to be really intentional with how we address these these substances and with also with how we how we do the research, how we conduct it. So if we design it intentionally, ideally with patient inputs, if we have improved data-driven drug policy that makes science and research easier to do, I think that this reputation will hopefully be improved and, and will go towards the direction of capital T truth, where people can have a, a more honest relationship with this. Yeah. Why do you think that some people have such an instinctive, apparently instinctive reaction to this kind of research? I think some people would be very dismissive immediately, simply based on the fact mm -hmm. that it involves psychedelic drugs. And why do you think that is? Well, I mean, the decades of, of information that was pumped out partially by governments, partially by perhaps well-meaning parents, you know, that that want to make sure that their kids are safe. You know, we, we encounter these uh, very, they're great stories, right? Uh, uh, but they're not necessarily true. And, and something scary sticks with you for a long time. I think perhaps people also, you know, might have, have seen the potential adverse effects of these drugs. So they're not just beautiful. It's not just something that, that could change someone's lives for the better. I think if you take it in a, a tricky context, if you take too much, for example, or if you don't know that you're taking these substances, I think they can be extremely scary and, and they can not a good thing for people. You know, I think that people might have themselves had bad experiences or seen their friends have bad experiences and this is of course also compelling evidence and it might lead mm -hmm. to some skepticism there's also a lot of how shall i put this pseudoscience around these substances where some quote-unquote real scientists might be a little bit skeptical because it's easy mm -hmm. to kind of muddy those waters uh even if there is truth there or or at least something compelling there so i think that the skepticism Sure, I, I understand where it's coming from, but I do hope that people are open, right? Because mm. the point of science is not to blindly defend some theory, it's to see data and assess it critically. And then if it is compelling, you know, be open to that. And I do think that the data is compelling for psychedelics these days. So if, if people are, you know, very gung-ho against it, perhaps maybe they should relax a little bit, but to each their own. <laughs> Would you like to see a greater integration of all of these things we've been talking about today? A greater integration of those things into modern medicine? Do you think that they have a place and do you think that they can be a big help to the swathes of people? Mm, I think I think it's uh, it could be a concurrent kind of development. So mm. I think that it I don't think that necessarily the integration of substances or of this 
treatment paradigm needs to happen before it's accepted. I think per certainly that could help, but I think the the acceptance can kind of happen at the same time. And we see that right now. It's these these conversations like we're having. You know, I don't think that this this would have been you know very acceptable even five or ten years ago. So it's it's great to see that the public is is becoming more open to these ideas right mm. and then this will i think also potentiate the possibility of these therapies being integrated into health services for example i think there's a lot of work to be done before that can happen i think we need to make sure that it this form of therapy is accessible because right now as it is it's very resource intensive and wouldn't be mm -hmm. accessible to most people uh, wouldn't make sense to be integrated, for example, into the NHS yet mm -hmm. as it is. So I think there's a lots of work to do. I think it can be done. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it could help a great deal of people. So I, I feel strongly about that. But I do I do think, you know, that there, there's a lot of refining left to do. You know, we're at this, the beginning of a very potentially beautiful journey, I think, for, for a great deal of people, but just at the beginning. <laughs> and And you are one of the people leading that journey oh i don't know about leading but i'm lucky enough to to be walking on the path yes <laughs> with, with a lot of very talented people with me with me wonderful julia what's your best advice for aspiring scientists in this field hmm i think one thing is is to trust yourself mm -hmm. um if you are passionate about well this isn't just about this field but any kind of research or or investigation if you're passionate about something you know dive into that i think that's a beautiful thing a lot of people second guess it if it's you know realistic i think diving in is is invaluable and really immersing yourself in it and then finding what really drives you and being true to that i think that's i mean it's incredibly cheesy but it's cheesy for a reason right it works i think especially in this field it's relevant because this field is exploding right now and different niches are bound to kind of spring up to accommodate various different interests that we perhaps don't even know exist yet so yeah i think just you know really following what you care about and and diving into those little strange strange directions is a great thing what inspires you most as a researcher Hmm. I think you might have heard this from from our discussion earlier but seeing the journeys of patients is really touching to me, really beautiful and, and very inspiring. I think having a, a tangible sense of the effects that you're having is incredibly fulfilling. And it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful reason to kind of push you along the long road. More than that, I think for me personally, I find it inspiring to investigate this idea of mind-body connection, of consciousness, mm -hmm. really diving into the philosophy of that, thinking about the human experience, about what moves us. I, I could talk about it for hours. <laughs> and I, it's a real privilege that I get to look at this for work. It's really, really nice to hear. It's nice to do. I think, um, yeah, I, I see a lot of people, you know, who who don't necessarily get a thrill out of their nine to five. Um, mm. And yeah, how lucky am I? <laughs> it's a recurring theme in, in the interviews we have that the, the most eloquent speakers are usually the ones who are most passionate about the work they do. And it comes through, you can feel it and hear it immediately. 
Julia, what other scientists do you read or follow at the moment? Oh, so many. Like, I guess it depends <laughs> on on which which field in in particular. So, in terms of psychedelic research, obviously the researchers on my team are are incredible, and I find very inspiring worldwide colleagues at. Hopkins, for example, Yale, UCSD, UCSF, Oxford, I, I think this is, they, they do some really great work. I'm a big fan of Selen Atasoy, who does really elegant work on consciousness. I, I think her theories are, are brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always inspired by Sasha Shulgin. He's, I think, one of the main reasons that I got into this, into this particular field, the, the humanity with which he writes is is beautiful. I also like not not necessarily academic institutions. I mean, those are great, but I think kind of more passion-based research or or think tanks are great as well. There's one called the Qualia Research Institute, which I find really interesting as well. There are some chronic pain researchers, which I think are fascinating. In particular, Mick Thacker and Lance McCracken do really beautiful work. And yeah, I mean, I could go on at length, but that's just a, a taste. Thank you so much for that. So our final question, how can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about your work? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter. It, both are just my name. Uh, mm -hmm. Also on ResearchGate, it's the same. And if you want to kind of keep up with our work at the Center, we have a website. Uh, if you just Google the Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial, you can find it. And that's probably also the best place to find out more about the study that I'm working on, Xylopane. So if you're interested in that, we also have a website there. Wonderful. Just tell us briefly about Xylopane. Oh, so Xylopane is, is a study that we're currently recruiting for, actually. And one of the well, as you might have noticed from, from our discussion, the main interest here is to investigate the effects of psilocybin-assisted therapy on a fibromyalgia population. It's a mechanistic trial, so we're doing a lot of brain scanning with EEG and MRI, but we're doing a host of other measures as well, looking at uh, well-being and pain scores, the acute subjective experience, we're looking at plasticity. It's it's going to be a really exciting study. And uh, yeah, I'm really thrilled to finally be launching it. Incredible. Julia, thank you so much for joining the Research Beat and sharing your really fascinating research with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. For more on Julia, you can find her on LinkedIn, Twitter, or ResearchGate, or go to the website of the Centre for Psychedelic Research. And to listen to more research like hers, take notes and share, sign up for your free trial of Audemic at audemic.io, or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram.